Hello, everyone. Welcome back to OnScript, the podcast where we bring you engaging conversations about biblical scholarship and the people who create it. I have a few brief announcements here. First of all, I want to offer a very special thanks to Michael Flowers and the folks at St. Aidan's in Kansas City for their very generous donations to the podcast. Thank you so much. You've been a, a super help to us, and we're grateful for that. Thanks also to others who have supported us as well over the last few months. In this episode, Matt Bates speaks with Scott McKnight and Dennis Venema. If any of you are Scott McKnight fans and here in the UK, he'll be the keynote speaker at Westminster Theological Center's annual conference on June 16 and 17 in Bristol. WTC is the institution where I teach, and I'll be leading a session there as well and some other really great people. So if you want info about that, go to wtctheology.org.uk forward slash events. Uh, It's going to be a really great gathering, so I highly recommend that. This episode delves into the world of science and the book of Genesis, which for many is a very perplexing topic, that the, how these two fit together. Uh, this one actually brought me back to my, my early apologetics days when I actually studied books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which is a, uh, it's a young earth creationist apologetics book and I I studied that book in school and learned it and in church and uh, learned how wrong evolution was and I remember even being made fun of by this one particular kid uh, for for believing that the earth was 6,000 years old he just thought that was ridiculous and that only you know that kind of uh, fed probably in me a a persecuted for my faith sort of adrenaline uh, gave me an adrenaline rush um you know, I, I remember whenever I would visit a museum, I'd kind of have to knock a few zeros off all the numbers uh, that described how old fossils were, or humans, or the Earth, or the universe. Um, and, you know, basically, I, I felt the religious compulsion to reread science. And the funny thing for me is that I don't ever recall having to work through the science to change my view toward accepting evolutionary biology and scientific consensus on cosmology but instead I had to rethink how I read the Bible and in particular Genesis and it wasn't a move from literal to allegorical or something like that but uh, a recognition of things like genre and literary style and how and even more basic theological convictions about how God works through culture uh, to communicate so for those of you wrestling with the question of science and biblical interpretation or just kind of curious about how people that do wrestle with that articulate it or if you're trying to articulate your intuitions about those things to yourself or others this episode's for you so i hope you enjoy it and don't forget to share the word with others via itunes twitter and of course uh, handwritten letters to your congressional representative everyone. Welcome to OnScript. Here at OnScript, you have the opportunity to enter into world-class conversations about scripture and theology. This is Matt Bates, your host today. Evangelicals, grab your Noah's Ark replicas. Atheists, seize your Darwinian fish symbols. It's the mother of all culture wars. Except Dennis Venema and Scott McKnight, who hold traditional evangelical Christian convictions, suggest that the war is needless. For Dennis and Scott, it is okay to acknowledge the Jesus fish and to affirm that humans and fish descend from common ancestors. For your double listening pleasure, I have both Dennis and Scott on the show today. We'll see where our conversation leads us. But the centerpiece will be the exciting and controversial book co-authored by Dennis and Scott, Adam and the Genome, Reading Scripture After Genetic Science. It's just been released by Brazos Press. Dennis, Scott, welcome to the show. Good to hear you, Matt. Likewise, Matt. Thanks for having us on. Now, Dennis, we haven't met before, so this is a real pleasure. But, Scott, I know you. Uh, When I saw you at SBL, you were wearing a Cubs hat every single day, and you told me you'd vowed to continue to do so until opening day of the baseball season. You still got that hat on? I'm not wearing it in my house, but I wear it all over the place. I almost wore it to Asbury Seminary, but I I didn't know how how they'd respond. (laughs) 
<laughs> Very good. Well, I have to admit, I, I wanted to celebrate with the Cubs, uh, and that might have been the best World Series I've ever watched. I'm a huge baseball fan, but I'm a Giants fan, so I, I'm a wee bit bitter over how things went down between the Giants and Cubs there at the end of the season with that epic meltdown in the Giants' bullpen. Yeah, well, I'm I'm happy for what happened. I'm, <laughs> it's called schadenfreude, and I yeah. have no apology. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. Now, Dennis... Uh, Dennis, you're an evolutionary biologist. Scott, you're a New Testament scholar. Now, evolutionary biologists and biblical scholars aren't usually running in the same circles. How did you meet and decide to write this book, Adam and the Genome, together? Dennis, why don't you go ahead and speak first, and we'll let Scott follow up. Sure, sounds good. Well, um, I have been with the BioLogos Foundation for a number of years, and uh, the BioLogos Foundation is an evangelical Christian organization that promotes mainstream science among Christians. And a number of years back, they had a grant program where funds were available for various projects connecting uh, evolution and Christian faith. And I very much wanted to write a book, and I wanted to write a book about evolutionary biology and also about uh, theology. But I knew if I tried to do the theology half, it would just be amateur hour. So there's no point in doing that. And it was right around that time that I met Scott at a BioLogos meeting, and he can tell the story too, but I heard him refer to some of the work I had done in his talk, and that just made me sit bolt upright in my seat. I didn't know that a theologian was listening to what I was writing. So after that, um, I approached Scott to ask if he would want to come on board with the grant program, and the grant program was what gave the support for us to write the book. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, I, I've I've had an interest in science. I'm not a scientist. I need scientists to tell me what's going on and explain it in ways that I can understand. And I read Dennis's article, uh, a very uh, intensive piece in the I think it's the American Scientific Association or something like that. And um, and I was very impressed. I had to read it twice. I got help from. Uh, a friend of mine, a fellow blogger who goes by RJS, who explained to me some of what Dennis was saying, and I was on board. I thought, okay, if this is where science is, uh, that's good. But it, it's really pushed me to to go back to the Bible and say, you know, what what is the Bible saying? And it was a it was the research of John Walton in his academic monograph from Eisenbrown's and in the more popular format of the lost world of Genesis 1 from InterVarsity that gave me uh, initial clues of how to explore more uh, coherently what Genesis 1 through 3 especially would have meant in an ancient Near Eastern context. So that's that's how we got together. And when Dennis asked me, you know, I thought, I, I can't do the science, and I'm not definitely going to be able to help him, uh, but I'm more than willing to throw my hand in this discussion because I, I I feel deeply for science students who struggle with their faith because of what they've learned in churches about how to read Genesis 1 through 3. So I was willing to jump on board with Dennis, and uh, we're quite I'm quite happy and proud with the, the product of, of what's happened with this book. And I've, I just had a conversation with a scientist who said... Uh, They've never seen a, a better explanation of evolutionary theory, genome, even intelligent design than what Dennis gave in the first half of that book. So I'm, I'm proud of the, the book. Well, you should be. I think that you both should be. It's a, it's a nice achievement, and uh, it's very clearly written and, uh, and very engagingly presented. And um, I think that the collaboration is certainly a fruitful one. Maybe you guys will team up again in the future. Uh, we'll have to see. Let me introduce uh, our guests uh, a little bit more fully. Uh, Dennis Venema is Associate Professor of Biology at Trinity Western University in British Columbia. He's a Biologos Fellow, where he writes a popular blog, Letters to the Duchess. He's also penned numerous scholarly articles. Meanwhile, Scott McKnight is Julius Armanti, Professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, the author of more than 50 books. Scott runs the highly influential blog, Jesus Creed, and is a world-renowned expert on early Christianity. Uh, I've enjoyed a lot of Scott's titles uh, over the years. Uh, the Jesus Creed is one of his most famous, uh, which won a Christian Christianity Today Book of the Year Award. Also, we might mention the Blue Parakeet, A Fellowship of Difference, uh, on the more, more scholarly level, the Epistle of James. Uh, but my personal favorite is his The King Jesus Gospel, uh, as that's actually impacted my own 
own scholarship considerably. Now, Dennis and Scott, you've you've already entered into your own personal stories a little bit, but I'd like to hear more about your own journeys with faith and science. Now, early on in your scholarly careers, both of you opposed evolutionary theory, uh, but over time you've come to embrace it. Uh, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about uh, your upbringing, what that was like, uh, and your, the reasons for your initial reluctance. Well, for me, uh, Matthew, it was um, growing up in the church, I sort of just absorbed by osmosis that evolution is wrong, that evolution is something that atheist scientists came up with so that they didn't need to, you know, explain, so that they had a way to explain creation apart from a creator. I can remember distinctly as I, when I was a kid that if I even heard the word evolution or heard the word Darwin, it was like hearing somebody swear. Like it was, that was a bad word. You didn't talk about those things. Um, the church I was in was not, um, wasn't, I wouldn't say it was hardcore young earth. I think most people were young earth creationists, but I think there might've been a few old earth creationists as well. But it wasn't something that was a huge focus of the church. I grew up in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, so missions was our focus. So I sort of absorbed by osmosis that evolution is wrong, and that stayed with me all the way through um, elementary school, high school, and even into university. I had wanted to be a medical doctor, so I went off to university to study a biology degree in hopes of becoming a medical doctor. Although, as I relate in the book, uh, my childhood dream had been to be a scientist. And when I was at university, taking that biology degree, those interests, that, that interest that I had had in science was rekindled. And eventually, I discarded the idea of going to medical school, went through my bachelor's of science in biology, and then entered a PhD program in biology. And I maintained my anti-evolutionary views all the way through my bachelor's, all the way through my PhD and postdoc, and even into the first number of years that I taught here at Trinity Western as an assistant professor, I maintained that anti-evolutionary stance. And it was only when I was asked to write a scholarly article on Christianity and biology that I seriously started to research uh, this question because I thought, oh, if I'm going to have anything intelligent to say, I'm obviously going to have to do some research on this front. And it was in the process of doing that research that I changed my views. I had previously been very enamored of Michael Behe, who is an intelligent design uh, proponent, biochemist. He wrote a book that I read when I was a brand new grad student called Darwin's Black Box that I thought was fascinating. When I was, or sorry, at the time I started this research for this paper, he had a new book out at that time called Edge of Evolution. So I thought naturally I would start with him because I was thinking I was going to write this article from a pro-ID perspective. And it was reading that second book of his that I actually realized that the ID arguments weren't holding up. So I actually lost my sort of lost my faith in ID. And then shortly thereafter, as I encountered the evidence for evolution, I decided that evolution was scientifically sound and that my views were going to be shaped by that understanding. Uh, I think that's a powerful story as it resonates with the story of many of us who I, I, I liked how you put it. They just sort of uh, picked up an anti-evolutionary stance through osmosis. That would be my own background, too, as I was in a, you know, a, a very conservative church tradition. I appreciate my upbringing in many, many ways as gave me a love for the scripture. But uh, like you, I also was enamored of science, although I went in a, a different direction initially into physics and was an electrical engineer for a while. So the sort of your story really resonates with my own experience and I suspect it does with many others, too. How about you, Scott? Was it uh, also anti-evolution by osmosis, or do you have uh, a different kind of story? No, I, I picked it up in my conservative church background. I mean, this was just unacceptable because atheists and non-believers, which meant Presbyterians and Lutherans, um, <laughs> believed, and Catholics especially, believed in evolution, you know? So that meant uh, that's something we didn't believe in. Um, I wasn't, uh, I was never vested much in science. I, I enjoyed some science in junior high. I was more of an athlete, and I liked the humanities a little bit more with with uh, literature and writing and, and history. And then when I was in high school, I took a biology class and liked it, but I took chemistry, and I had a great teacher named Doug Fireball, 
And I liked him so much I took advanced chemistry, although I was surrounded by students who were probably going to go into the sciences when they got to the university. I was I knew I wasn't going in that direction, but I, I enjoyed the class and I enjoyed the teacher. Uh, when I went to, to college, I had to take two science classes because I majored in history. And I took one of them as a freshman in biology. And the truth be told, I took the second one as a second semester senior because the course grade was determined by our grade at midterm rather than the end of the semester because it was in the days when everything was done in paper and it took that long to calculate grades and make sure everybody was ready to graduate. So that way I would only have to take a half a semester of science. So, uh, so I, in a sense, I rue my lack of interest because um, it was when I was, you know, when I was teaching at Trinity, I was teaching exegesis and science just didn't come up. You know, you don't in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't you don't have to get into the age of the rocks uh, in Capernaum. I mean, you can, I suppose, if you're an archaeologist or a geologist. But I, I, I just it just didn't come up. But when I started teaching university students at North Park University and I was teaching honors students introduction of the Bible, I I just I never sat around and calculated, but maybe as much as a quarter of my students or more uh, were at least interested in science, if not majoring in science. Many of my students went on to become medical doctors and some of them went on to do research in science that I became much more sensitive to science students' questions because at our university, the the professors were teaching evolution, and they would come to our Genesis class. I I taught the introduction to the Bible, so that included Genesis right at the beginning of the class. They came in with some suspicions about goofy things that they had heard in churches, and they sort of wanted to know where I stood without pressing me hard on having to know much. So I taught uh, multiple views. That's sort of what I did. I covered myself by saying, you know, not everybody agrees on these, but these are the options. And I would always say these are entirely Christian options. But it was a few students who pushed me harder that made me start thinking more. And then I read Dennis's article. And then I read John Walton's work. And all of a sudden, I had a new kind of lecture to give. And suddenly I had science students, one of whom is a very memorable experience, weeping at the end of the class, telling me after I'd lectured on Genesis 1 in light of John Walton's understanding of ancient Near Eastern creation stories, he told me that I had saved his faith. And I became doubly more sensitive to science students from then. And frankly, I I wanted to write this book to clarify in my own mind for science students who embrace evolution and genetic theory, I wanted to I wanted to write for that crowd, and so I've told a few critics that if they don't embrace what Dennis says in the half, first half of the book, don't bother reading what I have to say, because uh, it probably is going to take that kind of science to generate uh, the sort of interpretation that I give, or that kind of science to make people wonder. Uh, about how the ancient Near Eastern world understood creation narratives. Yeah, I think that's uh, really a helpful testimony, and it does speak to your pastoral concern. I think both of you, it, it shows in the book that you have you've come from the evangelical world and are still rooted in it and sensitive to it, and uh, and are aware of the exact kind of things um, that uh, people are struggling with as they they try to come to intellectual grips with the kind of evidence that Dennis is, Dennis brings. And so I think that it, it uh, the book does really commend itself and its pastoral spirit in trying to lead people through these issues. Well, thanks. I know Dennis faces this, you know, nearly all the time with his science students. I I don't face it quite as often. Now I'm going to face it with people coming up to me after church and asking me what I believe. But Dennis, I think, has an admirable spirit of knowing where those students are and trying to help them think through their faith. So I'm glad to hear you saw that that theme. Well, one of the things I think that um, you, your book also does commendably well is it sort of cuts to the chase. Now, this whole creation-evolution debate is is obviously a large um, mammoth project, 
Uh, but you really get to the heart of the matter and you, and you really say, you know, really the debate is about Adam uh, and Eve. Uh, but that, that's really the, you know, the nub of the issue for especially many evangelicals because they feel like if they were to give up on the historical Adam, uh, it's a slippery slope or maybe even actually uh, falling off the cliff as uh, then you're sort of abandoning the gospel. Uh, maybe you're abandoning the entire Christian, you know, meta narrative if you have to give this up. And there's a lot packed into that adjective historical. Um, I think uh, whenever we talk about the historical Adam, or at least a lot of possible assumptions. Um, what are some of those assumptions, and, and are there ways we can begin to parse that out uh, so that we, uh, we can uh, divide out what we mean by the historical Adam in ways that might be fruitful? Um, you know, um, I think Dennis would say this, but uh, and since this is more in my realm, uh, Matt is exactly right. Every time this conversation has come up, people have said to me, do you believe in the historical Adam? And every debate seems to go, ends up in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. So I was talking with someone the other day, and I said, uh, he said to me uh, that really the debate is about Trinitarian, it's about the Trinity. I said, I said, what world do you live in? I said, I've been talking about this discussion for 30 years, and everybody asks about the historical Adam. And I said, I'll be honest with you, I've never had one person ask me about the doctrine of the Trinity when it comes to this theory. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I think that question, what is the historical Adam, this, is, this has been something that I pondered constantly uh, in, these, in this debate, and it's something that I wrote and sketched and worked out and so I came to what I would call a taxonomy or a typology of what people mean when they say, do you believe in the historical Adam? And I, and I break it into these parts. That, and this tends to come as an entire package uh, because it's being asked by moderns. It brings in science. And it goes like this, that there were actually two persons uh, named Adam and Eve who existed suddenly as a result of God's creation. Now, increasingly, I'm hearing people say, well, there were other people around at that time, and I'm thinking, okay, this is all of a sudden a new development because throughout my entire life, these were the only two people who were on planet Earth, and, they, and we had a problem with Genesis 4 with Cain finding a wife out there somewhere, but no one was suggesting there were at least ten or 30,000 hominids wandering around planet Earth. So the first point is that there were two actual persons, so it's sort of an actual Adam and Eve. And then there were two persons that had a biological relationship to all human beings that are alive today, and I call this the biological Adam and Eve. Of course, uh, it would not be appropriate to say that the writer of Genesis had a theory of biology. It would be protobiology at some level. They believed in procreation, but that's a slightly different argument because moderns believe in this biological relationship. The third is what I call a genetic Adam and Eve, and that is their DNA is, is directly connected to our DNA, and that often means the fourth one is that those two DNA genetic biological, real human beings, Adam and Eve, sinned, they died, they brought death into the world, and most people that I've grown up with who talk about this think that this is where death itself entered into the created order. And so, and these people sinned and brought sin and death into the world, and that's called the fallen Adam and Eve. And then a fifth one, is that they passed on their sin natures. And this is a common instinct in any evangelical born after Augustine that uh, human beings genetically somehow pass on their sinful nature to one another. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox see that there's a, a proclivity to sin, which is slightly different. But in the Augustinian framework, uh, there is a sense in which our sin natures are inherited from Adam. I understand, theologically, that can be parsed out in a variety of ways. But when people ask me about the historical Adam, they're ultimately aimed to that point right there, that we are all by birth sinful by nature. And then that leads to the sixth one, 
and that is without their sinning and passing on that sin nature to all human beings, not all human beings would be in need of salvation. So therefore, the final point would be, if one denies the historical Adam, one denies the, let's say, the gospel of salvation or the need of the gospel of salvation. Now, I pass this by three or four of my theological friends who are evangelicals, and I said, look, I just want to get this right. I don't care if I'm right. I just want to get this right. Do you think this is what people mean when they ask me the question, do you believe in the historical Adam? And I tweaked it a couple times because of points they made, but I believe that this is what people mean when they ask me, do I believe in the historical Adam? So, yeah. Matt, yeah. as a theologian, what do you think? I think I think well, uh, both as a theologian and somebody who you know is rooted in the evangelical tradition growing up, uh, especially I would say that it's right on the money. Um, and I I would also uh, I I think that you hit on a very important point that we're going to probably circle back to is Saint Augustine's uh, contribution to the theological tradition and how that's impacted how we read all of this. Um, let's um, you know, and and there's some more things that we can say about how to parse out uh, these these ideas of history. Uh, I think as you you subdivide uh, you know different points of what we understand to be the historical Adam into genealogical and literary and, and some other helpful dividers, too, that we can maybe get to. I want to let's jump over to Dennis, though. Um, and uh, the, the, the whole first half of the book is just full of information that uh, would support evolutionary theory that Dennis articulates. And um, now I realize this kind of forum is not the right kind of forum to, to probably persuade those who, you know, are militantly opposed to any form of evolution. But nevertheless, I, I think that um, it might be helpful if you show, if you were able to at least tip your hand and show, uh, uh, summarize some of that evidence for us with the realization that uh, the real uh, meat and potatoes of your evidence is in the footnotes uh, of your book and things like that. But uh, could you outline some of the more important points uh, that you think would support not just uh, the idea of a, a microevolution, which many Christians might accept within a species, but macroevolution of animals in general? And maybe just restrict this to the animal kingdom, and we can move to talk about uh, evidence for humans more specifically as we go on. Well, I don't know. As a biologist, I would say humans are part of the animal kingdom, but that's the biologist hat speaking there, but sure. Uh, <laughs> when I've Sometimes when I've been speaking on these topics to people who have theological training, and I assume many of your listeners are theologically trained or have interests in theology, um, I sometimes draw an analogy to textual criticism. In a lot of ways, comparing DNA sequences between different organisms is very much like comparing texts. Um, so in textual criticism, now I'm an amateur here, but as I understand it, you can sort of assign a text to a group of texts, say a, a, grou a group of texts in the Western Church versus the Eastern Church or so on, based on the copied errors that they contain. So it's very common for a scribe to you know, make a mistake when they're copying a text. Oftentimes we see it in biblical texts where a difficult reading is rendered into an easy reading. So we have confidence that the, the more difficult reading is actually original. And then we see that same error propagated in a group of texts that are copied from that original error. We see the very, very much the same sort of thing when we start comparing DNA sequences between different species. I sometimes tell students that if we had never come up with the idea of evolution, if Darwin had never lived, if no one had ever cottoned on to this idea as a, as a way to explain species diversity, when we started sequencing the DNA of present-day organisms, we would have been dragged to that hypothesis. It would have been so compelling just by based on what we were seeing. What we see when we compare the DNA of different species for related species, we see a huge amount of identical sequences. It's actually usually quite surprising to non-biologists just how little DNA change there is between organisms that are related. So we don't need a huge amount of genetic change to actually have quite a bit of change at the sort of level of the organism. Um, with humans and chimpanzees as an example, so um, before genome sequencing was done, it was kind of an open question whether humans were more closely related to chimpanzees or if gorillas were our closest living relative. 
and DNA sequencing very much sorted that out, that we're more closely related to chimpanzees. And the amount of DNA identity between our two species, so if you take the human genome and you take the chimpanzee genome and you lay them out DNA letter for DNA letter, and we have about 3 billion DNA letters in both of those genomes, about 95% of those DNA letters are identical between our two species. I mean, that's far more than, you know, so I sometimes say, you know, if, you know, we say uh, archaeologists find another cave with another set of Dead Sea Scrolls and you find a large fragment that's 95% identical to some other fragment, some other text from the, from the canon, you wouldn't conclude that God had independently inspired and authored, you know, this text in a different group, you would, the, the first hypothesis would be that this is a copy of something that's been previously written down. And it's those same sort of lines of evidence that we see when we see uh, DNA, when we do DNA comparisons between different organisms. One of, uh, you, Matt, you should see uh, Dennis put all this stuff on screens. It's pretty fun to see some of this textual <laughs> criticism, which I think is a brilliant analogy. It is. But, um, you know, the other one he talks about is the, uh, is it the legs or feet in whales that there's absolutely no reason for these things to exist if they didn't have an uh, an ancestor? Is that the right word? An yeah, ancestor, yeah. an ancestor yeah. with feet. Yeah, yeah. You might not know, uh, Matt, but whales, um, whales in the present day, like adult whales, only have front flippers and and a tail. They don't have hind limbs, as it were. Evolution very strongly predicts that they would have descended from four-limbed terrestrial ancestors. And the evidence that Scott's pointing to, and it makes a, a, a very strong visual impact, is if you look at images of embryological whales, dolphins and such, for a very short time of their embryological development, they do have four limbs. So they actually... Make, and we actually know something of the genetics of this. It's really quite fascinating. So the, the genetic program that says make a limb, make, a, make four limbs and make hind limbs that runs normally in early um, whale embryos. But later on in development, there's a second program which only runs in the hind limb area that says, no, 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 we don't want to do that. Pull that back in. So then we end up with these little buds, these things that are going to become hind limbs that are actually pulled back into the body wall and abandoned. And this also fits in with all the other lines of evidence that we have. Um, you can look in the fossil record and we see a progression of species. We see a progression of different forms that are related to the lineage that came to present day whales. And those species in the fossil record have progressively smaller hind limbs. And of course, it also fits in marvelously with the genetic evidence that we have. If we do DNA sequencing, we see that present day whales are most closely related to that four-limb terrestrial uh, species like the hippopotamus and whatnot. So we have all these different converging lines of evidence from different fields that are supporting the same hypothesis. And this is actually something I talk about in the book at some length as well. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I didn't really know much about this, to be honest, at all until reading your book. I think I had seen evidence maybe for evolution, you know, on the basis of whales in the past. But uh, you laid it out so clearly, the idea that, for instance, evolutionary theory predicts that uh, because we're vertebrates and fish are vertebrates, well, then uh, it predicts that humans evolved ultimately from uh, a common ancestor that would include fish today. Uh, but then evolutionary theory predicts that mammals, as they emerged, actually went back into the water, like whales. Uh, and uh, and you cited some of this, this evidence from embryology and other things uh, that uh, that was was brand new to me, some of the, the, the material just outlined for us. So I, I found it to be, uh, to be a, a very compelling case and very interesting. So um, kind of uh, as we... Um, uh, think think about uh, you know the listeners uh, who might be tuning in here and um, some of them are undoubtedly on both sides of the fence in terms of the evolution you know uh, debate and the historical atom and whatnot uh, obviously uh, Dennis you, you have heard many many times uh, various objections to um, evolution and questions about, you know, well, why aren't, you know, if humans evolved, why aren't there still apes? What about intelligent design? What about the argument from irreducible co complexity? And you yourself uh, used to um, believe in intelligent design. Uh, what's some of your, uh, 
how, how can you help us to, um, uh, to, to intellectually come to grips with what you're arguing here uh, by maybe refuting some of those common errors or discussing them at least? And you're right to say that I used to, well, it's funny here, I'll maybe push back a little bit and say I still believe in intelligent design, just not with a capital I and not with a capital D. Um, as Christians, we believe God is creator, we believe he's intelligent, and we believe that he designed the cosmos that we lived in, or that we live in. But it, that's not the same thing as subscribing to the intelligent design movement, which is a particular group of uh, apologists and philosophers, mostly some scientists as well who try to make this argument that there are certain things that evolution isn't capable of doing. And I have a lot of sympathy for Christians who think along those lines, because for many, many years, I also thought along those lines. What did it for me to sort of to get me out of that was I read Behe, as I was mentioning before, both as a brand new grad student, and it seemed brilliant at the time. And then I also read Behe as a young professor who is now a PhD and has expertise in, in a field. And maybe I'll say this, Behe is a, is a very good biochemist, but he when he tries to make arguments that are in population genetics and evolutionary biology, he's arguing things that are outside of his area of expertise. And so as I was sitting there and reading that, I realized that what Behe was arguing wasn't holding up to what I knew, didn't, didn't stand up to what I knew about those fields as a professional. So that was sort of where I had my disillusionment and my loss of, of faith in ID. But I've actually had some criticism in the book about people, people saying, you know, this is supposed to be a book about Adam. Why do you have this chapter in the book that's on intelligent design? And I should make a, a, a point that Michael Behe himself, as an ID person, accepts common ancestry, which is kind of interesting. There's a range within ID as to what one accepts, and it ranges all the way from young Earth creationists up to folks like Behe who um, accept common ancestry. So what Behe is objecting to is certain mechanisms within evolution. He thinks that in order for certain structures to come into being, certain molecular structures, that all the components need to be assembled at once. And it's on this uh, argument or on these lines of argument that he makes that I critique him. The basic idea is, is that there's very good evidence in biology that we can assemble these things in a stepwise manner. So it's very common in biology for if you have a, a, a group of genes that are doing a function, a group of proteins that are doing a function, you can add a protein to that or add something new to that group. And it's optional at the point of being added. But then as things change over time, that new component, which was previously optional, might now become essential to the process as the other members of that complex or the other members of that group of proteins change. They now may come to depend on this new member that's been added. So later on in history, if you take away that component, the system might stop working. Behe's basic argument is because when we take certain things away from these groups of genes that work together, if you can take one of the, those things away and then the whole system stops working, he says, well, that's evidence that they all had to be present at the same time and put together. But he's missing the, the evidence and not dealing properly with the evidence that very strongly suggests that we can add these components over time and then later that they become essential. Now, we don't have a full record of all, you know, we don't have a good full explanation for how all these complexes that we see in the present day may have been assembled in the past. There are some examples I talk about in the book where we've actually watched these sorts of things be assembled over time and have a component that's non-essential later become essential. But the question at that point is, you know, we can always, and typically what you see with the ID movement is if one uh, sort of example gets explained to a certain level of satisfaction, well, you can always move to another example that's less well understood. And the question is, at that point, are we... You know, do we want to keep apologetically going down that line where we can constantly say, well, here's something that we haven't explained. So perhaps there's there's evidence of of divine activity here versus an understanding that the whole process is designed, that evolution, you could think of it as a form of design. I think of it as a fantastic way for God to design a biosphere of organisms that relate to one another properly and have appropriate interactions with one another and also have the opportunity to change as environmental conditions change. I think that's actually a fantastic way to design organisms. So I, I view myself as as a design person, but 
just not subscribing to the intelligent design sort of anti-evolutionary take on things. Yeah, I think um, I don't know if I if I control the language of your technical discipline well, but you talked about whole genome duplication. I remember and uh, and uh, and the evidence uh, around whole genome duplication for uh, how we could come about uh, to have these kind of things that appear in retrospect to be irreducibly complex uh, because they're mm-hmm. necessary, but um, but that you but there's actually experimental evidence uh, showing that these 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 events have happened and we can watch them in the laboratory uh, yeah. happening, uh, and that's that's a that's pretty powerful evidence I think that you marshal. Here's a question now that uh, is just a question that I've struggled with and to continue to struggle with as I was as I was reading the book, and I don't know which of you wants to tackle it, um, but it's it's this that. There's a sense of uniqueness of, of you know the human being being made in the image of God, um, and it's it's a struggle I think for uh, for all of us as we're trying to wrestle with what this process might have looked like with let's say ten thousand hominins that you argue and we haven't really gotten to your evidence for that yet but maybe we'll get there uh, that maybe that um, instead of there being an original pair Adam and Eve that we had a group of ten thousand hominins that evolved together uh, how do we imagine then um, the gift of the spirit or human uniqueness or that entering in as a historical moment. Um, Either, who wants to tackle that? Well, I'll, t- I'll say something, and Dennis will say something because his his approach, his his answers have a slightly, you know, he, he has a different nuance than I do. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that people somehow think that this uh, image of God is like genetic, or it is somehow physical, or biological. And the the most recent studies of what image of God meant in the ancient Near East and what it means in the Christian tradition is that it refers far more to our vocation in the world. So let's say now that image of God refers to the development of a consciousness before God. Now, consciousness itself is a profound scientific problem and discussion, and I I can't say a word there that's intelligent. So I'll just know, I just know it's profound. Um, And I would say that we developed a consciousness of our accountability and responsibility before God. And let's put it this way, that God made us conscious and God makes us um, accountable before him. And we understand that responsibility. And then we choose whether to uh, live within that accountability and responsibility. That's the way... I look at image of God is that we have uh, this fullness of consciousness of responsibility to ourselves, to God, to others, to the world that God made uh, made for us, and that and that we are accountable to God for that responsibility and mission. So I see image of God along that line, rather than I mean, if you want to, you could start moving it to the. I think it's called the frontal cortex or something that that distinguishes us in in many important ways. Uh, But I'm less inclined to think that this is genetic, biological, physical material and far more a consciousness of our responsibility and accountability before God. That correlates uh, in some ways to, you know, what Walton has talked about with, you know, the the main purpose of creation to be to establish function rather than origin. Uh, Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, Dennis, do you have any reflections on that for us? Scott's right that people often think of it as a biological sort of thing. I think that's because we come at this as moderns who are deeply steeped in scientific ways of thinking, even if we're not scientists. So, we think that image of God needs to correspond to categories that we can think about. But I think, yes, the right answer is what Scott and John Walton have worked on, that we need to hear image of God language in the original context. Now, as a biologist, I can say certainly that humans are, you know, we are unique on the planet in many ways. There's many features of our biology that even to a secular biologist are very interesting. Because, you know, other species aren't putting people on the moon, other species aren't, you know, chatting over the internet, that sort of thing. So there's biologically something very interesting about our species. 
So we have that distinctiveness. I know that Christians are often eager to sort of take that distinctiveness in some sort of biological way and map it onto having a soul, image of God, those types of things. But I don't know that that's the right approach. The um, What we see if we go back in time from an evolutionary perspective is that this conversation would have been more challenging because in, in the past, when we had other species that were more closely related to us that were still alive on the planet. So we actually, we cohabitated on the planet, as it were, with other species that were very similar to us and our close relatives. So the Neanderthals are one example that many people know about. There's another group that we know about through their genome sequence called the Denisovans and others. And we actually interbreed with these species a little bit as well, which further complicates the picture. I talk about this a little bit in the book as well. So, you know, what makes humans distinct is an easier conversation now than it would have been 35,000 years ago. So, so I don't want to paint too rosy a picture to say, oh, yes, there's all these things that make us very biologically distinct. Part of the reason for that is because some of our more closely related species have gone extinct over the last couple of tens of thousands of years. So... Kind of moving along here in the book, as I want to make sure we, we try to do justice to something of the whole of it. Now, Scott, in chapters 6 and 7, um, you, you you expend considerable effort tracing the literary history of Adam and Eve in the original ancient Near Eastern environment on the one hand in one chapter, and then in the next, uh, you kind of move to the time period of Jesus, looking at broader stories that were current in you know, the Greco-Roman milieu of that day. Why do you spend so much time on that? And what, how does that, why is that necessary, I guess, for us getting a, a proper grasp on the problems that are at stake uh, in, in assessing the historical Adam? Yeah, I think the fundamental task of interpretation is to listen to what a writer has said or to read what an either, a writer has written and to enter into dialogue with that person in their own terms, in their own categories, till we understand them in their world. So I often quote the great line by Johann von Goethe, Willst ein Dichter du verstehen, musst ein Dichters Lande gehen. If you want to understand a poet, you have to go into that poet's land. And so when uh, John Walton's book came out, and I was fresh of reading Dennis's article on the Genome Project, I said, I want to investigate what Genesis 1 through 11 meant in the ancient Near East. And so I, I, I came to the conclusion that Genesis 1 through 3 is a Hebrew version of ancient Near Eastern creation narratives. And it's distinct and unique and potent and quite different than what you would see in the other narratives, say, Atrahasis or, you know, whichever text you want to take from the ancient uh, world. But then I also wanted to investigate... Uh, because Paul lived in a world, Jesus lived in a Jewish world, uh, that had an interaction with Adam. Because from the time of Genesis till the time of the New Testament, uh, there were actually lots of Jewish discussions about Adam. And a friend of mine, Jack Levison, has written a brilliant book about Adam in the Jewish apocalyptic and Jewish traditions. So he he had mapped, in many ways, the ways that we needed to go. So I, I went back to all that evidence and read it all again from the ancient from the Jewish texts. And so I, I looked at Genesis in light of the ancient Near East to respect that text in its world. And then I wanted to understand how Jews, between the, let's say, between Genesis and Jesus and Paul, understood Adam, because then when we get to Paul in Romans chapter 5, we see Paul as a species of Jewish understanding of Adam. And so I wanted to be respectful of how Adam was understood in the ancient world. And, and Matt, one of the major reasons we have to be respectful of Paul uh, and, you know, I didn't get discuss Jesus, and there's other texts in Paul that needed to be discussed, but it all comes down to Romans 5, and I wanted to look at that text especially, and I was running out of space, um, is that because of the Christian tradition, we tend to assume that what we think about the historical Adam or about Adam and his connection to us is exactly what Genesis taught, 
and is exactly what Jews taught, probably, and is exactly especially what Paul taught in Romans chapter 5. And, and I have to tell you that I think that we are mistaken in thinking that Paul was Augustine, that Jews were Augustinian, which they weren't, and that clearly Genesis 1 through 3 was not Augustinian like that. And that's where I think uh, we, by studying the world of the Bible and understanding the text of the Bible in its world, we challenge some of our interpretations in a liberating way because it drives us back to believe the Bible as it really was rather than as we've made it to be. Yeah, thanks, Scott. That's helpful. And just for readers who maybe, I mean, excuse me, listeners who maybe don't have um, as firm a background in the Augustinian uh, world and what we're what what Scott's referring to here uh, is that very famously Saint Augustine uh, and I think he was building on Jerome and others uh, trans <laughs> translated and uh, 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 from the Latin. Uh, the phrase F ho as in whom all sinned when it was reference to Adam. Uh, and that's a, a very disputed translation. There's linguistic evidence that would favor uh, perhaps because all sinned uh, as, a, as a stronger translation of the Greek. Uh, and so are we all sinners uh, because we're in Adam? Uh, or are we all sinners because he sinned? Uh, what's the difference? And uh, do you want to flesh that out a little bit for us? Well, you know, what is big, the difference? The big thing is that in now, I don't think anyone is going to say that everything is based upon a mistranslation of a misunderstanding of Jerome. I, uh, even at Vancouver when I was, or at Langley when I was with Dennis at an event recently, someone told me they think that's a misreading, uh, the people are misreading Jerome and what he meant. Whether it's rooted in a misreading of Paul or a misreading of Jerome, it doesn't matter. Uh, it was at least supported by one interpretation of Jerome and Augustine that when Adam sinned, we all sinned, and therefore we are all born in sin. And we are all born as sinners, and therefore by nature we are sinful and in need of redemption from the moment of our conception, I guess, or birth, we have become guilty before God. That's a pretty standard tradition. And I am convinced that that's both potent in the Christian tradition, and it forces us all to think of our standing before God. But the question I'm asking is, what does the Bible actually teach on that? And I am not convinced. I'm certain that it's not taught in Genesis. Um, I'm certain that it's not taught in the Jewish text, and it clearly is not a Jewish tradition that would have been assumed by anyone listening to the Apostle Paul. And I think that Romans 5, 12 through 21 does not really press us to think that way about what our connection to Adam is. Is that I think original sin, in, in a, an important way, tells us something very true about our human condition. I, I love Alan Jacobs' book on original sin. So, at some theological level, it's, it's, it's an important idea. The Easterns say we have a proclivity to sin. Who can deny that? But, at the same time, I am not convinced that the Apostle Paul teaches that we are guilty because we are Adamites. We are guilty, I think, are born in Adam. We are guilty because we're Adamites in the sense that we sin like Adam did, and therefore are accountable to God for our sinfulness. That's not Pelagian. Uh, I believe in the grace of God that we, we, don't, we aren't born in that sense purely innocent. Human beings are um, human beings all seem to be sinful for some reason. And, and I'm just willing to live with that because of the condition of sinfulness in human, in human beings. And we, we exacerbate it when we sin. So something along that line is the way uh, we're thinking about the Augustinian tradition. I think um, the way you frame it in the book is to say that, you know, Adam is, is an archetype uh, for both Israel and all humanity so that he's a model or a, a pattern that is established that we somehow imitate for reasons that you're you're willing to sort of say, I'm not sure why yeah. uh, or how we make that connection, but that you want to, you want to make certain that it's not in Paul, that it's a biological connection. That's right. Uh, you'd want to parse that out and say, that's that's not in Paul. The biology part that's right. uh, is not Paul's concern. All right. Yeah. Um, 
Well, as I teach this in the classroom, uh, one of the things that I tend to focus on is the idea of recapitulation that we see, for instance, in the Irenaeus, and the idea that we reenact, uh, we reenact the sin of Adam and Eve, or we recapitulate yeah. it in our I own like lives. That. I like that a lot. Um, I think that's very so true, too. Yeah, just another way of speaking about it. But I, I think you're right that it's important maybe to maintain the idea that we, uh, uh, on the one hand, have this proclivity to sin, but on the other hand, are free before God and that we freely choose it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that seems to be what's emphasized by Paul. How about you, Dennis? Have you found in the classroom that you're, uh, you're able to articulate these things in terms of uh, the conversation about the Augustinian tradition? Are you, are you more deferring to your biblical colleagues and uh, sending people across the aisle. I'm very much sending people across the aisle. Um, I have, like, as I said before, I'm an amateur when it comes to this thing. An interested amateur, perhaps a a reasonably well-read amateur, but an amateur nonetheless. But one of the things I do talk to my students about is just to raise those questions. You know, we, we are in a church tradition that very much values the Augustinian way of looking at things, but is that, you know, is that in light of the new evidence, is that something that we should necessarily hold to? One of the ironies, and I point this out to my students, is that Augustine himself was often, uh, often said things along the lines of, well, you, you know, you shouldn't hold to a particular interpretation too strongly because it may fall, you know, on disputable matters, don't hold to things too firmly because future advances in science, I'm paraphrasing, of course, here, might render that interpretation untenable. So I think if Augustine was here in the present day, he would be pretty comfortable with this conversation. To be, And it's a, a little bit interesting that we're sort of so strongly holding the, to this particular view of his when he himself would probably have been open to other ways of looking at things in light of the new evidence. Yeah, he was certainly a creative and free-ranging thinker. So uh, I think you're probably right in your sensibilities about St. Augustine. You know, I think that's right about Augustine because he said he basically affirms the need to. Uh, if you find that your interpretation is against science, re- he doesn't say uh, science is wrong, and he doesn't say the Bible's wrong. He says rethink how you're reading the Bible. That's profoundly humble. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's that's good. Um, um, one thing that uh, we have done with all of our guests uh, is we've asked a, a single question uh, and uh, just to see what kinds of responses we get. And it's been kind of a fun question. Now, Dennis, if you don't want to answer this question and you want to just absolve yourself because you're an outsider to the field, uh, then you're welcome to absolve yourself. But if you have any thoughts, <laughs> if you do have any thoughts, uh, we'd, we'd, be, we'd be glad to hear them. So here's the question. Uh, the magic question we ask to all our guests, what is the one idea in the field of New Testament studies? I am definitely going to punt on that one, yeah. So <laughs> That's totally fine, <laughs> okay. totally understandable. Right. Scott, you're not off the hook, though. You, you, you okay. have to answer this one, Scott. The one idea that needs to die is that science is always changing and that somehow theological conclusions are always the same. Now, I'm going to develop this in Houston at the BioLogos conference uh, for a few minutes, and that is, if you go to your ordinary uh, university and go to a biology class, you're going to be getting largely, I I think I'm right here, you're going to be largely getting the same kind of science, the same basic conclusions, the same basic method, etc. So you can go anywhere in the world, basically, and get a very similar understanding of science. If you go to 15 Christian colleges in the Midwest, and you go and hear them under, uh, interpret what Paul means in the Book of Romans, you're probably going to get somewhere between 15 and 30 huh. different opinions. Well, that's charitable. Uh, it's probably more than that, Scott. <laughs> And the point I'm making is is that the idea that scientists are always changing their mind and theologians are always the same is the is probably the opposite of yeah, what's going on. Yeah. Science develops organically, developmentally, and slowly and incrementally. It's a gradual expansion. There's rarely a major shift. There, you know, there've been. Uh, in theology, you go to local churches, and every pastor seems to be their own pope, and they get to teach the way they think about things. And 
you can be very confused in a theology class, but you can go to science because you know it's going to be solid and stable. That is a very interesting thing that we need to understand. Now, I, I make this analogy, Matt, you're going to like this because of where you teach at Quincy University. The only analog to the scientific method in theology really is the Roman Catholic developing tradition. Well, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting claim. I haven't I haven't heard that one before. No, I know this, and I I made this claim out of a moment of inspiration, and uh, <laughs> I thought it was kind of interesting. The Orthodox are similar, but notice how often evangelicals shift and change and debate and go back to the Bible and discover it all again, and and there's a lot of sh- I mean, you can read the ref- the reformers. And then you read modern-day readers on the Book of Romans, even people who are Presbyterians, and there can be significant differences. And, and I think that the Roman Catholic model of theological development is the closest thing we have to scientific model of development uh, in the world of theology. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, it, I think that um, I think that you're probably onto something in the sense of there's uh, more of a refining spirit uh, within uh, the Catholic world, and uh, a sense that you know you have the original seed uh, that was the deposit of uh, that was made, and, yep. and you have this outgrowth from there. Uh, but I, I do wonder sometimes if the Catholic tradition is more reluctant than it should be uh, to to uh, to recognize that there might be some illegitimate grafting in of tradition over time, right? And uh, that, yep. that's obviously the problem. Protestant concern is to uh, yes. to ferret that out and say yes, I think that uh, you're right. There was a seed and there has been growth, uh, but some of it has been uh, illegitimate. But scientific method does that too, right? As science yes. uh, science does uh, over time reject certain hypotheses uh, and uh, only only hypotheses that have been confirmed again and again and again uh, have the status that's not uh, irrefutable that's right. but is still firm of being a thesis. Um, I liked uh, the, the the first part of the book, Dennis, uh, where you talked about. Um, uh, uh, this problem of, of the idea that science is shifting all the time and how it's fueled especially mm. by uh, the science of the diet industry that is uh, a sort of pseudoscience, but that real science uh, works more on slow incremental refinement. I thought that was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, I was going to say... Uh, I wanted to, um, as we're as we're running shy on time, to give you both a final chance to wrap up things here, uh, and. I thought a good wrap-up question would be to kind of touch back into the pastoral spirit of what you're what you're doing, and so then maybe we could get a, sten- a statement both from you, Dennis, and then from Scott uh, about why you think it's imperative that the church grapple with this new evidence about the human genome. Uh, pastorally, why do we have to do this? Well, whether we like it or not, our young people are going to be hearing about this, and. Science moves very quickly nowadays. One of the things that we had as a benefit with the whole heliocentrism versus geocentrism discussion, and I talk about that a bit in the book, you know, 500 years ago or 400 years ago with Galileo and all that, is the science of the time moved quite slowly. So from, you know, in 1600, everybody's a geocentrist. In 1850, virtually no one is. But you've got that time span where the church can slowly and incrementally think differently about how they interpret and how they present those passages that up until that point had been viewed as evidence for a static earth in the center of our of the universe, as it were. We don't have that same luxury of time this time around, unfortunately. Science is moving quite quickly. And frankly, evolutionary theory has been a well-supported theory for a very, very long period of time. The church could have been working through this, and certain aspects of the the Protestant church have worked through this. Um, But we could have been working on this a lot earlier. I think a lot of leaders in the evangelical church in the, you know, 1950s, 60s, and 70s felt that they really needed to sort of hold, hold the fort against this, you know, evil evolution on the outside. But the lines of evidence even then were pointing that this was solid science. And now with the genome sequencing data, the Human Genome Project and whatnot, so available and so accessible, our young people, or even, you know, even not so young people, are going to find out about this. And if they're hearing one thing on Sunday that they know just cannot measure up adequately to what they're hearing in biology class or even seeing online in a YouTube video, then that can 
for them generate a very profound crisis of faith. If you, if, if you know something of biology and you know that what you're hearing in Christianity doesn't match up with that, it can cause, like, and this is actually something that happens all the time with my students. They say, if my church has been so wrong on this point, yep. what else are they wrong on? Mm-hmm. You know, yep. why, why should I believe anything I'm hearing from them? Mm-hmm. So I think we have to address this pastorally. Thank you. And Matt, I would add to this, uh, I'm going to, I completely support what Dennis is saying is eventually our, our students, our young adults are going to confront this. Someone is going to explain to them in a compelling way, uh, some, something about genetics or evolution. And if they've been taught certain things about Genesis one through three and what the Bible is, uh, they're going to go through a crisis of faith. And here's, here's what I, I study conversions. Uh, I've written a book on it, two books on this, and one of them collects uh, four studies of of specific kinds of conversion experiences. One of which, oddly enough, if every conversion is an apostasy from something, every apostasy is a kind of conversion. That was sort of my theory, and so I studied why people leave the Christian faith. The number one reason, by far, is the a crisis of faith that is precipitated by those who grow up with a conservative view of the Bible and inerrancy and inspiration and infallibility and then study science and learn about evolution in the material world and become semi-convinced of evolution, they are confronted with an either-or. Either I believe the Bible or I believe science. And since science seems to be pretty solid here, I can no longer believe in the Bible. That's the number one reason why young people walk away from the faith. And so as a result of that, I believe we are, uh, we are summoned, and I would say we can only be obedient to the calling as Christian leaders if we become far more sensitive to the questions scientific students have about evolution and how it relates to the Bible. And that's why I got involved with Dennis in the BioLogos project and why we wrote this book, for me particularly, is I'm interested in science students who want to know how to square evolution with ancient Near Eastern understandings of creation narratives. Yeah, terrific. Scott, one, one last quick follow-up question then. For a, a pastor, let's say, who's listening to this podcast and is thinking, gosh, I'd love to, I'd love to broach this topic with my, con- my congregation that's conservative – but I don't even know how. I don't even know where to begin. Uh, do you have any advice for how do you even how do you even begin this conversation uh, with those who come from a different framework? Well, it's it's very difficult, and I would say uh, begin small, begin slowly with scientists in your class, I, I, I in your church. I would not force the issue. Sunday schools, small groups where they could read a book like this and have fair, honest questions where people can be told they can say what they think and it won't be held against them. Uh, but I, I would say it should take place more in the realm of coffee shops and conversations with like-minded people than it is something that you preach on Sunday morning and get yourself fired for. I gotcha. Yeah, good advice, probably. Well, Dennis Scott, it's been a true delight. Uh, Adam and the Genome is a lively and compelling read, and you've given me much to ponder. Now, if listeners are on the fence about whether or not to make the purchase, uh, don't be on the fence. Get off it. Buy it and read it. You'll thank me. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. Dennis Venema and Scott McKnight have been the guests today. The book under discussion, Adam and the Genome, published by Brazos in 2017. You'll find a link to the book on our website, onscript.study. Do take the time to share about our podcast on Facebook or Twitter or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm-hmm.